Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 93 of Yogaland. On today's episode, I am partnering with Yoga Journal, my alma mater. I'm partnering to discuss the Me Too movement. They have a great series of essays in their March issue, which is on newsstands right now, about the Me Too movement. And two of the writers of these essays are Judith Hanson Lassiter, who's been a guest on the podcast before, and Mary Taylor, who has not been a guest on the podcast before, but who I was just so happy to welcome to the podcast. I'll offer just a quick bio for each of them. I'll put their full bios on the show notes page because they're both just so accomplished and interesting. Judith appeared on episodes 82 and 64, if you want to go back and listen to those. Judith Hanson Lasseter is a trained physical therapist, and she's been teaching yoga since 1971. She's written nine books and is one of the founders of Yoga Journal Magazine. Mary Taylor began studying yoga in 1971, soon after she came home from France, after graduating from Julia Child's cooking school. In 1988, she found her primary teacher, Patabi Joyce, and the Ashtanga system, and she really experienced a profound and transformative impact to that dedicated and daily practice. Mary continues to study and practice yoga and Buddhist teachings. In 1988, she co-founded the Yoga Workshop with her husband, Richard Freeman. She's also the author of three cookbooks and co-author of What Are You Hungry For? Women, Food, and Spirituality, and The Art of Vinyasa. I have to confess that it's taken me a long time (laughs) to put this episode together because I feel like there's no possible way to do this in one episode and to cover all of the different layers and levels and issues and different points of view. And I just really always strive to be thorough and fair. Having said that, I feel like we get through a lot in this interview. We talk about, you know, how difficult it is to currently enforce a code of ethics in the yoga world because yoga teachers are not held to a legal standard. And we talk about why that is. We also discuss how systemically it's been really hard for women to even know what is appropriate or inappropriate and how that has bled over into the yoga world. I myself feel like when the Me Too movements started, I felt very much like, hmm, well, I know that my boundaries have been transgressed many times, not in yoga, actually but just in my life. But I don't think I, I think in certain ways I blamed myself over the years because women are just trained to feel like we have to be so vigilant that if anything negative happens, we sort of automatically always think it's our fault and, or we diminish it. We talk about the student teacher relationship. Mary and Judith have just really interesting things to say about that. And the fact that it can be difficult for teachers sometimes to to remember that when you're standing in front of your students, even if they are looking up to you, that it's really not about you. It's, it's about the teachings. And then finally, Mary was willing to talk about what is happening in the Ashtanga yoga community right now. They are going through their own painful chapter and kind of working their way through it. And so I am grateful to her for being willing to speak up and speak directly in the midst of a time that's confusing and is definitely not all resolved yet. So 
I usually say very enthusiastically, I hope you enjoy the interview. And this interview is a little more uh, somber. It's a little more serious than usual, but I think it's important. And I would love to hear from you and hear what you think. I'm so, so happy to be speaking to both of you. I was talking to Mary earlier. I'm so heartened by what we're seeing happen in the yoga world and the world at large with the Me Too movement. You both contributed essays to Yoga Journal recently about it. And that's what spurred me to connect with you in this conversation. I've been thinking for months, who do I talk to? What do we talk about? There's so many different layers. There's, I'm not going to be able to cover it all. It's going to, you know, and so this is a great doorway for me to, obviously we won't cover everything, but I think it's just a great way to begin having an open public dialogue about this. Great. So Judith, I want to start with you. If I'm remembering correctly, when I started working at Yoga Journal in 2002, you were interested in creating a code of ethics for yoga teachers. And I feel like at that time, you were just way ahead of your time. And there was this sense of like, how would we really do this? And, you know, you can't police all these different schools of yoga. There's so many different streams of yoga. So can you, am I right about that? And can you tell me, you know, what motivated you? This was like, 15 years ago. California Yoga Teachers Association, of which I was president for a long time and a member for decades, we wrote one, I believe it was for, before the year 2000. Okay. We wrote, and you can look online, California Yoga Teachers Association, we wrote a code of ethics, which I believe was virtually positive was in the early 90s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because of the that had been happening in the Eingar community that spurred us on. But that didn't carry over to Yoga Alliance, did it? No, because we didn't fi- found Yoga Alliance until it was later. Okay, okay. And what we used to do is we used to, we had kind of an open meeting, not Sita, but me and the other people. We had an open meeting at Yoga Journal conferences because that, in those days, in the 90s, uh, everybody in the Odron conference. And we all met and we started hammering it out and we got a group of people, well, I guess about six or eight people. And we used to have these conference calls, these hours long conference calls talking about standards. And that's what created, you know, Alliance was that. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. but the ethics part was not as developed as I would like it to be. It still isn't. Right. But it's definitely moving in the direction that I like. I want to just say, you know, going into this conversation, because, you know, Mary and I are going to talk specifically about what's happening in the Ashtanga yoga community right now. But unfortunately, abuses have happened in, I don't know, probably every school of yoga. And and Rachel Brayton wrote a blog post where she invited people to tell their stories and, and, and she took the names out and the names of the the teachers that were being referred to. Sometimes they were massage therapists. Um, And that also, and she got a huge response. And that also shows that, you know, yeah, we do need to do something and we do need to talk about this. And I think, like you're saying, a clear code of ethics is definitely a place to start. But I think we're past that mm-hmm. in a way. I think there is a code of ethics. The California Yoga Teachers Code of Ethics is pretty thorough and straightforward and at least 
a good starting point, but I think that the problem is a different one. All right, I'm a member of a profession. I'm, I'm a physical therapist. I was a yoga teacher and decided I didn't know enough, so I went to physical therapy school. I learned a lot, but I still don't know enough. Nobody knows enough to teach yoga. What we have to just do our best. We're all still learning. And I'm held to a certain legal standard. I had to get people in the medical profession, when you get your license, you're fingerprinted and you register with the state board. And I'm duly registered. I'm in an inactive status at the moment because I'm not working as a PT, but I'm you know, registered with the board. And there are consequences to my misbehavior. If there are complaints against me, there is an adjudication process legal adjudication process that happens. I could be suspended or my license could be taken away forever. I could be fined. I could be put on probation. There's a wide variety of combination of things that could happen. Ultimately, I could lose my license to practice physical therapy if my behavior was egregious enough. And this is true for doctors, mm-hmm. dentists, lawyers, psychologists. A lot of professions mm-hmm. have this result if you if you don't follow the standard practice. So here's here's how the problem deepens and widens and thickens <laughs> is that there is a clear scope of practice that defines what physical therapists do. Hmm. There's a clear scope. When you see that name dentist, you know what a dentist does. But when you see the name on the wall on the you know on the door yoga teacher, you have no idea what that person does. Because there's no defined scope of practice, A, and ergo, is par- and partly because of that, there is no legal standard in the United States for what a scope of practice for a yoga teacher is. And if there's not a legal scope of practice, you can't professionally hold someone accountable. Now, you can hold them accountable legally for assault, but you cannot hold them accountable for breaking the code of professional ethics, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Because there is no scope of practice in the law of what a PT does. Right. And so this is our problem with yoga teachers. We are good. Overwhelming majority of yoga teachers are ethical and well-meaning. But there is no body that adjudicates these issues. And so all the people who have done this, unless they have been sued or, or charged in, in the legal system, are still teaching. They're all still teaching. I mean, if I want to be a yoga teacher in, in, in the United States, all I have to do is say, I'm a yoga teacher and have a few students. I don't have to have any particular training, any ethical training, and there's no ethical standards. There's no bar exam, quote unquote, for uh, So we're really in a very immature profession in that way because we we say we want to be a profession we want professional respect and professional fees and we want to be treated well because we believe so much in the power and importance of what we do but we're not we're not a profession right no we're not and i mean i think that like you're saying even though there is a code of ethics it's like because it's not held to a legal standard it's not taken and and so you can never lose your license now i think yoga alliance is withdrawing accreditation to people in a judicious manner but those people can still teach and and you know i will actually talk to yoga alliance as well 
I'm going to do a little bit of reporting with them directly, but. Excellent. I support them and what they're trying to do. Okay. That's what I was curious about because I, I know people really trust you, Judith. I have yet to be able to tell if they are sort of outlier voice voices, but there is some mistrust of Yoga Alliance at this point. And I know they have a new CEO. And when I went and did some research for this interview, they seem to be really focusing on this issue in, in a forthright way, which gives me some hope. But I also kind of wonder if they're taking the steps to really enforce it and how, how they can enforce it. Well, I've had a number of talks with the new CEO, David Lipsius, and he's an attorney and he is very savvy mm-hmm. about this problem. And right now he understands that it's, it has to be handled through the, through the judicial system. That's no, there's no professional thing, but they're definitely very attentive to this. They're moving in this direction I'm very optimistic about where David is leading the organization. Good. And may I add may I add something here? Absolutely. Yeah, so I totally agree with you, Judith, and on pretty much everything you've said here and want to underscore the fact that you know both Richard and I also really support the new kind of leadership and sort of maturity. the maturity maturity the maturity and the vision of Yoga Alliance. They have been, they, you know, under David's leadership, they are really recognizing that there are things they have done that have not been as supportive of the yoga world at large as they would have liked them to be. And they're wanting to figure out how they can best support yoga, both as a spiritual path or as a path of waking up and a profession. Mm-hmm. And as David has said on a number of occasions, it's not going to be something quick and easy that can be done, but he's very dedicated to sticking with the task at hand, which, and this is one of the big issues that is front and center. So I, I have great hope for them. You know, just as an outlier myself, Richard and I, due to various different reasons, but one of them being the fact that in Ashtanga Yoga, a a Yoga Alliance certification is less, in the past, was less valuable than getting a certification from India. And so a lot of us, including Richard and I, never got Yoga Alliance affiliation. And yet we've, they've reached out to us as people who didn't join them and said, why, why didn't you? And Mm. what what would be helpful in terms of a bigger yoga world for us to include, you know, something that would, that would serve you, not like, well, how are you going to give us money, but what would serve you? That's great. I'm just at this point of this recording going into the Ashtanga yoga confluence that's happening starting, I guess, tomorrow. And yoga Alliance has supported us in that in, in ways I'll let you know about Great. We do our bit. great, great. Um, you know, it's interesting. I know that David Lipsius came from the Corpalo community and they are really well-respected and, and a really professional organization. And they also happened to, and I don't know how long he was there, but they also happened to have successfully recovered from serious sexual abuse with, from a previous leader, Amrit Desai. So it's interesting. He 
might have, at the very least, he has firsthand knowledge of how that community recovered, which I just think is, is gives, gives me hope also, you know, he's not going into this completely blind to the issues, you know? He has my thumbs up and my confidence. And he's told me a lot about how he, he, when he came into the Kripala community, how it was and what his choices were. And I like that he makes them with his, and Mary can, uh, will probably back me up on this. He seems to make, as the leader of Yoga Alliance, he seems to me to make decisions equally with his head about the legal and financial and ethic, but also with his heart, because he is himself a practitioner. And this is delightful to me, because that's, that's the way I want to be in reality in the world, you know, with my head mm-hmm. <laughs> and understand. But at the same time, this is, as Mary said, this is a spiritual path. This is not just a profession. This is not just a job. Some people would call it a calling, you know, that it certainly felt that way to me. I mean, this whole series of circumstances occurred, which literally sucked me into the yoga world. And overnight I was practicing yoga and 10 months later I was teaching. And it was something that captured me as much as me finding it. So mm-hmm. I think, I think he's, he's going to help be a big leader in our community Good about this, not just you know, Iyengar community or Shangri, I think he's going to be someone that Europe will all grow to respect greatly. I totally agree with that. Good. That's great to hear. I want to go back just for a moment to something you said, Judith, which is defining a scope of practice. And I'm just sincerely curious, um, love to hear from both of you, since we do have so many different approaches and so many different schools and systems as to how difficult or you know, not difficult, you think it will be to define a scope of practice for yoga teachers? Well, it's horribly difficult. That's what we tried to do when we had those initial yoga alliance meetings. And now the International Association of Yoga Therapists has gone crazy trying to define what is yoga therapy. And we still can't define it. And that may not be totally a bad thing. But what we can define is what yoga teachers don't do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. I was talking to, I was just teaching a workshop down in San Diego and I had two physical therapists there who are avid and very devoted yoga students, first and foremost, and also PTs. And they specialize in pelvic floor work. Men and women can have just a lot of dysfunction if the pelvic floor is dysfunctional. And there's a lot of work going on now in physical therapy about physical, about the pelvic floor. And for example, yoga teachers don't do anything with the pelvic floor. We don't give high velocity manipulations of the cervical spine, which I've seen yoga teachers do. We don't, there is a difference between what their scope, the PT scope of practice is and my understanding of my role as a yoga teacher. And that maybe what we do mm-hmm. is we, de- we define our scope of practice by what we don't do. Hmm. We're not psychotherapists. We're not, you know, doctors, we're not nutritional advisors, we're not, you know, maybe we start looking at it that way. Hmm, that's interesting. Like when you go shopping, you may not know what you want, but you can see, hmm, not that one, not that one, not that one. <laughs> that's a start. Yeah. What do, you, what do you think, Mary? I think that's an interesting perspective. And, and in fact, you know, it is a very difficult 
subject to put standards to because there are such, it is a deep subject. And so it is highly unusual to find any lineage or any one teacher who has been well-versed in the depths of the different aspects of practicing and then teaching yoga. And so um, to try to standardize it starts to become very problematic very quickly. Mm. But Mary, you know what I'd like to add to that idea is that the generation of us in modern America who had direct and consistent contact with a source in India, Mm -hmm. like you two did and I did and studied directly with Mr. Iyengar, you know, uh, we're fading (laughs) (laughs) on many levels (laughs) riding off into the sunset, you know, (laughs) and when there's a whole generation or two, or maybe even three, I think I have yoga, great grandchildren, the people who study with people who study with people who study with me, you know, it's like, it's like, I am a yoga grandmother, great grandmother as you, as you are. And, and those people have not had direct contact with the source. They didn't study with a major teacher from India who was steeped in the culture in in India. And so they come to yoga in a Western context with a Western mind. And we, you know, we went to India and we lived there and we practiced and we got, we, we had a different experience contextually, culturally than they're having. And And their training is by people People in yoga teacher training programs right now are by and large with people. I mean, there's some of us still hobbling around, but there's by and large, they're, they're teachers who've never had contact. That shapes everything. That shapes a lot. That, that really shapes a lot. Yeah. And, and the direct experience is one of the things that is talked about in so many yoga texts. And I think another aspect of that is that it is an opportunity for evolution as well. And that one of the interesting angles to it, to me, is that when you went into it or when we went into it, it wasn't as though we were going in thinking, well, this is my career path. Right. No, I think that's key. I think that's key. I do. Yeah. And so for those of us who've been at it for a long, long time, what is paramount is that, and what I think makes yoga, you know, one of the things that makes it very different from any other quote unquote profession is that it cannot be um, taught or practiced as a, as a teaching practice. If you, as an individual do not do a practice, meaning you're whatever your physical practices, your breathing practices, your ethical practices, that they are conscious practices that begin before, long before you start to think of it as some way of making a living. But Mary, I, I can't, I, we are, we're just like sisters from the same mother or where, I mean, I completely, but that's not the reality of who's coming to yoga studios. And when I, when we founded the, Anger, well, first we founded the Institute of Yoga Teacher Education, the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. And we were, we had all been teaching for a number of years. 
We founded it partly to help ourselves and to train the people who came to us had been teaching. Now people decide, oh, yoga teaching looks fun, and they go knock on the door, and they don't have a practice. Right. But I can't tell you how many people say to me, well, I haven't been practicing lately. And I'm like, how can I look at them incredulously? How can you teach? (laughs) But then what happens is that, you know, as you practice, which what happens is that it, when you're trying to teach or as you practice, you, the yoga itself starts to reveal the depth of the subject matter. And if you are going to be a good teacher, it starts to make you just sort of spontaneously realize you must toe the line and do practice so that you can start to have insight so that you can then teach. And what we're finding, and you, I'm sure you've also, we do see that with some students, but then we see students also who suddenly after five years, let's say, of doing kind of random practices, something hits them and they get that shift inside that yoga can do for you. That is sort of this transformation that can happen. And then they start realizing, wait, there's a lot more to this than I knew before. And so I think, and this is something that the yoga Alliance is, I believe bringing into the public view is that there are paths into that deeper sense of this is something that is is a transformative study. What I think where we're, we're many of us are falling down or many schools are falling down is they don't have senior enough teachers to convey through words and actions that it is how you live your life is as much a teaching as turn your left foot in and your right foot out. And that embody, embody the teaching of yoga. And the other point I wanted to make was that I think what has to happen because this me too problem is, is been going on since time began the misuse of power, which I think is what it is. Mm-hmm. It's been going on for since, you know, ever in human cultures and it's pervasive. And so that it's not just somehow going to magically go away. We have to, we're looking at it now and we ripped off the bandaid in a way that's so healthy, but the wound is still bleeding a little bit. I don't think we're done with being aware of it and mourning it, but I think we need to look towards understanding how we can shift it. And I think one of the best ways we can shift it is to educate our students, not just teachers, but our students. What is appropriate touch? Mm-hmm. What is inappropriate touch? And I taught my children that when they were growing up, you know, and I when they created a boundary and didn't want me to come in when they were in the bathtub and close the door, then I would knock. I mean, I taught them through my actions yep. as well as my words, but we are not training students to be discriminating. You know, the yogi is discriminating. Discrimination is a very important part of the yoga training, the real from the unreal, but we need to train them how to do this and understand to say no. And we need to train 
our teachers, and this is, I'm very passionate about this, continually, that being a teacher of yoga is not a right. Just because you paid your money for your training, it is not a right, it is a privilege. Mm-hmm. And to be, to be approached with humility. So I have, can't tell you how many times this happened to me. I know it's happened to you too. People come up, these young people come up and they say, how do you become a famous yoga? How do I become a famous yoga teacher? And I look at them and I'm like, what? That, can you imagine us saying that? Yes, I are. You guys, Jason told me that people said this to him like a year ago when I, or two years ago when I started the podcast and I thought he was joking. I just, no. I thought he was, and he said, I don't even know, I don't even know what to say to them except that's not a goal that you should have. <laughs> I want to just focus in a little bit because I think Judith, you brought up some really interesting points. There's two things I really want to get to in this conversation. The first is that this issue of, of helping young people, the students. And I, when I say young, I mean, I mean, even just young in your practice, understand what abuse, what abuse is, you know, I am sort of talking to Mary about this, like, when the Me Too movement started, I was kind of like reflecting and thinking, well, no, I technically haven't been physically assaulted, but I definitely feel like my boundaries have been crossed many, Mm -hmm. many times. And especially when I was younger. And I think so many times because societally and systemically, there was no acknowledgement of it that I didn't even necessarily register certain things as abusive behaviors. So right. I only in yoga. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like we're kind of at a watershed moment societally and, and like, especially because women are bringing this up the most, I feel like we have a responsibility to clearly communicate leadership and say, like you're saying, Judith, you educated your kids that if they, if they didn't, I, I, we had this discussion before, so correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is you educated them. If it feels in your belly, like it's wrong, it is. Trust mm-hmm. yourself. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. 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 That's kind of what I say to my daughter. Like, it doesn't matter what anyone says to you. If you feel in your belly, like something's wrong or in your chest or in your throat, that something is wrong, it is. And remove yourself from the situation. Yeah. I also told them when they were with me and we were on the street and a neighbor or some other adult spoke to them, they were to say good morning back or hello back. But if they were there by themselves, they did not have to talk to any strange adult who talked to them. Oh, that's interesting. That's a good, very good discerning. I don't want to teach, didn't want to teach my children, especially my daughter, because we, we teach girls to be another level of polite. Yes. Oh my gosh. It's so true. And, and it's true with the Me Too movement coming out and I began to think back in my life and I had all these memories slowly came out of where I felt unsafe or I just didn't, mm-hmm. it was words or attention or touch or not, you know, nothing. Well, it did go up all the way to attempted rape, but that was, there was a lot of that through my life. And I think every single woman has had that. I mean, cat calls when you walk by a construction site, I mean, that's on the continuum. Or even just like, if you, if you reject a man that he then like, even for a date or something that he let then lashes back at you violently, like in a, you know, with his words or his, like that feeling of just, you're not allowed to speak for yourself. You're not allowed to 
push back, quite frankly. And this is actually something that I'm really interested in. And and I don't, I certainly don't have the answers, but it's how can we help people in the yoga community report abuse more easily? Okay. And this is something that I just wrote Rachel about. We're, we're in uh, communication and talking and it's something that I, I really wanted to raise with you today is why, why are we so afraid to say the name? Well, I mean, yeah. You know, and people say, oh, well, it's a legal thing. But I I don't know if that's absolutely true. And so I've I've said the name, what happened to me, and I've tried to, you know, now, and it was hard. Mm -hmm. My daughter called me up and said, Mom, I'm proud of you that you did that. Uh Because I would never talk about that publicly. And it's think that I'm wondering what I'm afraid of. I'm wondering what we're afraid of. Well, we're afraid of, you know, millennia of not being supported or believed or listened to. <laughs> but that's what's happening now. We're still afraid. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things that I do and have done this for decades is I ask permission to touch my students. And that's, I like that. And when I'm training teachers and I say in my class, this is very important to me, so please do this in my class. You know, when you're working with another student in the learning situation about teaching. But it's it's really not enough because unless you create an environment of safety, people will not feel that they can say no to you. Because we're so taught to give in to authority, mm-hmm. to follow authority, especially women. And all my growing up, The people in authority, my minister, my principal, my airline pilot, my doctor, my gynecologist, everybody in quote unquote authority was male. And so it's like a double whammy for women. And we need to create an environment. And I even talk about this with my students. I say, so I may, I may want to touch you and I will always ask permission. And there's there's two answers to that. One of them is no, please repeat after me three times. And they laugh. And I say, you know what happens when you say no to me? Nothing. Yeah. And I said, believe me, people have said no to me and lived full, rich and happy lives. Three of them are my children. <laughs> you know, and I make, but I make light of it in a way, but I also tell them and I live that if someone, I said, would you like to show this pose? No. I say, okay. And I, I, there's no repercussions. I create that environment intentionally in my classes. Yeah. And Judith, I think that is wonderful. And, and we do the same thing. And I think that that points to the approach to teaching where it is not as the teacher turning the view of the student onto you as an individual and saying, aren't I great? Aren't I the one who knows everything? Aren't I the one who's going to heal you, save you, fix you, whatever, but instead to be the teacher who allows the student to point, you point behind you to the teachings and to the experience of the student of those teachings. That that's when we're talking about direct experience. Their direct experience of the teachings is what is important. It is important for them to have a teacher who can help guide them along that path. But I think a lot of times where the troubles begin is when the 
teacher loses sight of the fact that they are a servant to the teachings and to the students. They're not the object of the, you know, adoration and the object of the room. They shouldn't be pointing at themselves or saying, you need to do what I tell you to do. But instead, it's the teacher's job to say, how can I best serve? Yes. We're all bhaktis. Teachers are bhaktis. I mean, we're devotional. That's what we do. We do karma yoga. We, even though we're teaching Hatha yoga, but the thing is that we don't teach Mary. Most people who train in yoga in the United States today in these short programs, they're not taught pedagogy. I mean, if I went to school to be an elementary school teacher or a high school teacher, I would take courses in pedagogy, the nature of the student-teacher relationship, you know, and, and, and understanding the art of teaching. They don't get that. Yeah. They don't get any, yeah. anything like that. I think that was so well said by, by both of you and such an important point. And I think in addition, this is kind of like dovetailing with what you were saying, Mary, is in addition to understanding that it's, it's not all about you. It's also understanding that when people come in seeking, you know, let's, let's, there are some people quite frankly, who come in from a broken place and might conflate the healing of the practice with the healing of that individual, Absolutely. Does that make sense? And so projection. Absolutely. Projection. It's a psychodynamic process. Right. When it's a power differential and there are emotional issues on the table. It's the classic so, psychodynamic. Yeah. So I do wonder how much that teacher-student relationship is taught in trainings and, 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 you know, hopefully Yoga Alliance will listen to this and, you know, it can become a more standardized practice. And I'm just wondering how the two of you address this in your training, since you're so thoughtful about it. It's a big part of what we teach, you know, that to, and to watch your as a teacher and to be truthful, we've seen a number of people who've been students, wonderful, you know, inquisitive students, and then they start teaching and something shifts and they start, they start not noticing that they are taking the quote unquote adoration of their students. Hmm. They start absorbing that and believing it. And you and I were talking about this a little earlier that it is really important for students not to put a teacher on a pedestal Mm -hmm. because then they can't be questioned, but it is equally and possibly more important for a teacher, if they are put upon a pedestal by their students to immediately step down Mm. and say, oh, because it is this, that's where the abuse of power starts to sort of feed into the human nature of like, oh yeah, actually I am this great enlightened being. (laughs) And it's always a good rule of thumb that if you have a teacher who says, yes, I'm enlightened or yes, I'm this highly evolved person to sort of say, thank you very much as you back out of the room, because uh, (laughs) you know, my mama, I grew up in the South and my mama told me, she said, honey, some boy tells you, trust me. Don't, that's the one you don't trust. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Very (laughs) wise words. What I do, what I do just some, just to give you a little feeling of it. I recommend a book called 
Inner Gold, I-N-N-E-R, Gold, G-O-L-D, two words, by Robert A. Johnson. I think there's also a Robert Johnson who writes, but Robert A. Johnson. And he talks a lot about the process of the student-teacher relationship in a very accessible and interesting way that I think is quite applicable. And the other thing that I teach uh, specifically in my teacher trainings, which is pretty much what I do now, is that why we have a talk every five-day training. We talk about this. What is the job of a yoga teacher? And I say the first, the most important job of a yoga teacher is to reflect back the inherent goodness and the inner wisdom. That's it. To reflect back the inherent wisdom and inner goodness of the student. That's what we're doing is we're telling them by our words, actions, demeanor, touch, everything, that they they are already that, Tatwama see. They are inherently good, and they have, they have wisdom. And that what yoga is about is helping us remember mm-hmm. our wholeness. And it's not me. I'm the mirror. Yeah. I'm not the light. Yeah. And... I tell them, if I may tell you now shortly, the experience I had the first time I taught a class. I had been studying for 10 months. My teachers moved away. There was no real, I had not taken any yoga teacher training, which I soon did, but I practiced every day from the first day. I loved it. I read everything. I was annoyingly enthusiastic, uh, (laughs) for sure. And I, I went into the first class. I had 200 students a week in this yoga program from day one day I wasn't a teacher. Sunday night I wasn't a teacher. Monday I had 200 students. I mean, God said, do this. So I sat on the mat. You know, everyone came in in those days. Mary remembers the white cotton yoga pants, lie down in the darkened room. And, <laughs> and it's kind of nice, actually. And I sat on my mat and I, and I thought, oh, my God. What have I done? What am I going to say for an hour? Oh, my God. (laughs) What is it I've learned to do? Oh, yes, close your eyes, take a deep breath. And immediately I had this very powerful, palpable sense of my teacher standing behind me and hers behind her. And very quickly a line back that became Indian men, I have to say, in my in my experience, it made the hair on the back of my neck stand up and chills go over my scalp and down my arms. And they were just all standing. And I just went, oh, it's not me. I'm just handing it along. And I had this image of a bucket. And I'm my rising sign is Aquarius, the water bearer. And that was it. You know, I had this sense of It wasn't me. And it was this complete relaxation. And I opened my mouth. And as I like to say, hasn't closed yet. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I believe Mary is really saying, that she's talking, that that she understands, because she's such a mature practitioner, that that's the problem, is that people believe it's, they believe their press releases. (laughs) Big mistake. Yeah. Actually, Mary, I think your your that depiction of back out of the room quickly yeah. <laughs> is so smart because it's true. I mean, I think that I just remember when I did my teacher training and Paul Grilly did a little segment and he said he actually was just so frank and he said you might get propositioned by your students. You might like 
if you're teaching privately, you know, I've had both people in a couple separately proposition me, you have to be prepared for, you know, anything. It was really his point in telling us that. And, uh, and I think the, I don't know, maybe you two have an opinion on this, but I think the only solution to a confused student is really to have very, very, very clear boundaries. And clear communication. And as Judith said earlier, it falls then again upon the the teacher to have set up an environment where it is safe and um, welcomed to get questioned and to have people say no and have people say, wait a minute. And so, yeah, I think that a huge part of it is also the communication. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's making me think there could be like signs in a, in a yoga studio that say, you know, you have a right. Everyone has a right. This is what Shannon Roche of Yoga Alliance said in a video that I watched. Everyone has a right to practice yoga free from abuse, harassment, and manipulation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I might yeah, sound silly to be that explicit, but... What? No, I think that's good. But you know what? I could not agree more, but people don't know what that is. Yeah. Because they've never been in yoga and they don't know the cultural context of a class and everybody seems to be going along with this weird thing. Okay. I mean, some of the stories I've heard about, I've heard about a teacher teaching a teacher training in the somewhere warm, (laughs) you know, in the, I don't know if it was the Caribbean, South America, but that, and the graduation was supposedly you got up and took off your clothes and went up and hugged him. That was part of your graduation. And this one woman who told me about it, she said, I, I never done, I had no idea. I thought this was, you know, this was part of it. So I'm like, holy moly. Oh, boy. Uh, have you really beaten common sense out of your head by teaching yoga? Oh. What, what have we done? So that I, I agree with that. But I think the education has to be more simple and straightforward. Like Mary said, the truth, like you have to say, it's not appropriate for a yoga teacher to touch your inner thighs Hmm. or your buttocks or your breasts. Hmm. It's not okay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. People know that when they go to the doctor, they know that when they, you know, generally most people know about massage, but they, a lot of people don't understand that in yoga. And it has a spiritual patina which really takes even more boundaries down that they would have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, um, but I'd like to say one last thing to you and to Mary. I want you to hear with your heart how deeply I appreciate how much you care about this issue. And that I know that that comes from your deepest self. And I I love talking to you. I think yoga needs more women to talk to each other about their experience in the world. And I'm really deeply appreciative that you're both working every day in so many ways to make the world a better place. So my deep appreciation and respect for you both and for the challenges you face as human beings, as women, as yoginis, and that you, you keep, you keep returning to those challenges with an open heart. I'm very honored to be part of your 
circle in any way. Thank you so much, Judith. Thank you. And the feeling is mutual. Absolutely. You just made my heart swell. I'm grateful to you that you're willing to talk today about what's happening right now in the Ashtanga yoga community, because it's, it's not an easy issue. And like I said, it's something that's touched so many yoga traditions. And I want to just review my understanding of the situation for any listeners who aren't aware of it. So my understanding is that Patabi Joyce, who is now deceased, his family is still continuing the Ashtanga yoga lineage, that he did sexually inappropriate and abusive assists over the course of his teaching. And that some people knew about it, but no one knew what to do about it. And you wrote an essay addressing this issue in Yoga Journal in the March issue. I'm wondering if you can just talk about the issue itself, what your understanding of it is, and where the Ashtanga community is right now with everything that's happened. Yeah, well, it's a very difficult and delicate time within the Ashtanga community right now. For those of you who, many people who've heard of Ashtanga because it is sort of a rigorous practice and it is also a practice that has as a sort of a foundational part of it, teachers assisting with sometimes skillful, sometimes less skillful, but often, not often, but sometimes rather intense assists. There are waters within that that start to scare people off, but also can be clouded, cloudy, can make things seem a bit cloudy, excuse me. And in terms of being a a yoga practitioner, wondering what is all that about. And within the yoga Within the Ashtanga world, what I think has happened is that because it is a very physical practice and because, let's say, when I say that, poses like putting both of your feet behind your head and then lifting yourself up on your arms, which is a really physically demanding kind of thing or strong arm balances or whatever, the teacher tends to... to communicate not only with words, but also through touch. And when a foundational, another foundational part of the practice is that it's done in series of postures and the students are instructed to pay attention to the breath, the sound of the breath, the joining together of the two ends of the breath, the apana and the prana. That joining together is one aspect of what an internal form would be called mudra, and mudra just meaning the joining together of opposite patterns, whether it's within a movement in a leg where you spiral in and then spiral out, or a movement in your mind where you're thinking one thing and then thinking something else, Mm -hmm. or movement within the breath. And so it's a multi-layered 
practice where you are really focusing on breathing mudra and then what we all know as bandhas, which are the things like mula bandha, uddiyana bandha, that are part of this idea of joining together opposite patterns. And then the final practice is the gaze, the drishti. And so, and I'm going into all of that because what has happened is that it has become clear in the last few months as people have started talking about their experience in Mysore with Patabi Joyce, as well as with some other teachers, Ashtanga and non-Ashtanga, where people have felt that assists are overstepping boundaries of intimacy or even are abusive. And within the Ashtanga world, the problem has been in part that when you are practicing in a large room with, say, 200 or 50 or even 20 other people, you're looking at a particular drishti, you are listening to the sound of your breath, you're working in very intense ways with your asana practice. And so you you may or may not, and likely may not, really be paying attention to what's going on in the rest of the room. So what I think has surfaced recently is that Patavi Joyce did some assists that were sexually invasive and for some people sexually abusive, sexually questionable, or sexually confusing. And depending on what he was doing and who the person was, they were approached, you know, they were they were different. And some people watched them and others just kind of heard about them. And so it's this what has happened is over the years those of us who've been practicing this form of yoga for many, many years kind of knew that some people were uncomfortable with some of it and others, you know, other people didn't know that that was going on. And, and some people believe, you know, saw these assists that they felt were very inappropriate and others just heard about them. And so there is a lot of confusion about what was actually happening, what his intent was, why he was doing this, why people were responding or not responding. So it was a, over many, many years, there was, it was something that was just sort of very confusing for many students. And I think that in part feeds into what we were discussing earlier, where women weren't saying, hey, wait, some women were, but not all women were saying, hey, wait a minute, this is not appropriate for you to touch me in this way. If women did say that to Patabi Joyce, he always stopped, from what I understand. On many occasions, teachers or his family, who are a wonderful family, they would, you know, speak with him and he would stop, but then again, it would start again. And so it was this, it's, it's, as Judith said, there's a wound there. And within the Sangha community, there has been this confusion in the form of this unspoken wound, but not a conspiracy to not talk about it, not a deliberate uh, cover-up of it, but for various different practitioners to whom the practice itself spoke deeply, there were either avoidance or denial or 
um, rationalization about why he might be doing those assists. Mm -hmm. And I think another reason that was very difficult for people to talk about was that beyond the assists, many of the people who have been longtime practitioners with him really knew Patavi Joyce and his family almost as if they were our family, like extended family members. And because we would go and live in India with, you know, not in their home, but every day working with their family, going on, you know, side trips to different places in India with the family, sharing food. And then the practitioners who were there would be there for years and years and years in and out. And so we all knew each other very well. And there's this feeling of really a a sense of community Mm. and a sense of, when I say it as a family, it really is a feeling like there are people who are part of my extended family Mm -hmm. who've been doing this for a long, long, long time. And so when there is a confusing issue like this within any family, it is very, you know, it's a, a difficult issue to talk about. But you add into that the fact that it was in the context within classrooms of a very rigorous physical practice that part of the practice is is assisting students to get into postures more deeply. Mm-hmm. And so I think that for many years, you know, partly due to the thing that we were talking about, that women just didn't know what boundaries were appropriate and what were. And there's no recourse. There was no recourse in in any level of society for women forever. There's never really been a system that supports speaking up about these things. Well, and I mean, I, this is something I'm just beginning to say publicly, but when I was uh, 19 and I'm much in 65 now, but when I was 19, I was in London and long story short, was lost and got into a car with this older gentleman I thought was going to help me. And he raped me. And it was many, many years ago. And I knew that if I reported it, that they'd say, well, you got into the car with him. Yeah. And in fact, I thought, well, that was stupid. It was my fault. I got into the car with him Mm -hmm. for years. And I think one of the reasons I have become so really passionate about speaking out about sexual abuse within the yoga world is that for me, that experience, I sort of pushed it under in my subconscious. I talked about it in therapy and thought I'd worked it through, but it came back to haunt me. And in that, in a sitting meditation practice I was doing at one point, the memory came back in full force and had a profound impact on my nervous system. And within a few weeks, I came down with an extraordinary case of uh, what was, after nine weeks of excruciating pain, diagnosed as rheumatoid arthritis. And I'm certain that it was triggered by, I'm sure, sure I had the propensity for that, but that it was triggered by that memory of something that I was not able to talk about. And so for me, it is, I, I'm very compelled to, to talk about the issues of our own experiences within yoga, of having 
situations arise where we feel sexually assaulted, sexually abused, sexually unclear. And if we feel those things, they are real. We're the teacher's intention. It doesn't matter what the teacher's intention is. The fact is that our perception of that makes it real. And as yoga teachers, it is really important for us to to realize that students come with all different kinds of backgrounds, with possible triggerings, and with temperaments that are very different. So that you know, we must be a hundred percent clear in how we are assisting them. That being said, in terms of the Ashtanga world, um, I think that Patabi Joyce's assists, you know, did incredible harm to some people and to other people. They didn't seem to impact us as, you know, on, on a visceral level in that way. Mm-hmm. But the, that even if it were only one person who was impacted that way, that is too many. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so... What I think needs to happen within the Ashtanga world is that these issues have just bubbled up and become more public in view, and it has caused dialogue within the Ashtanga world. Like you know, and my my hope, because some of the dialogue has been, to be truthful, I think a lot of it that happens out in the internet world where people just read something or they read a portion of something and then just have this reactionary adrenaline-driven response and then write something and then hit send, that then it damages the problem or it perpetuates the problem in a, in a different way and, and damages the solution or the healing from the problem. Mm-hmm. We could talk, if you want, about the specifics of the assist, but I think one of the biggest things that is that would serve people who are listening to this as much as anything is to really recognize that we need to listen to each other. We need to step back and listen deeply to people who have felt assaulted by Patabi Joyce, who have felt it and therefore have been assaulted by him. We right. also need to step back and and have uh, compassion for the practitioners and most profoundly for his blood relatives, his family, who are also in a state right now where they are trying to discern what is you know what has happened and trying to digest what is going on and so if there is just this reactionary response from everybody about well this person's doing this or that one's doing that without listening i think that we'll do continual damage and so to listen and communicating is what we need to do mm-hmm. and i think yeah making the point that face-to-face interaction and dialogue or even over the phone is so much healthier than mm. just typing something out and, you know, in, in a reactionary state. One question I have is, my understanding is that his grandson, Sharat, still actively teaches the system and that he is high integrity and has, is not doing these types, has never done these types of assists. 
And that's true. And his son, Manju, okay. and his daughter, Saraswati, also teach traditionally within his style. And neither neither of them have, you know, ever done any kind of assist like this. You know, I, I did Ashtanga Yoga many years ago, so it it may have shifted and changed, but do they still do the strong physical assists? Is that still part of the system? Well, I think that, again, Patapi Joyce did some very, very strong assists. And, you know, as many of the listeners probably know, he and Iyengar had the same teacher. Krishnamacharya. And so Iyengar went off more in the alignment line of things, and Patabi Joyce went off into the vinyasa end of things. And so I think it wasn't his interest to kind of know alignment in the same way that Iyengar did. And Iyengar learned and self-taught, etc. Um, so my experience has been that it is a very individual thing that some teachers um, have much more strong, quote unquote, strong assists than others. Our background with Richard and I is that we have, you know, always been teachers from the time we very first worked with Patabi Joyce, where we have never done strong, you know, crunching type smashing assists. We feel very strongly that that the assist come from the inside out rather than the outside in. And there is, you know, some approach. There are some people who approach it as, you know, just try to shape people into these shapes. And for some people, you know, that can work for a while, but at after a certain point, you know, it really becomes the student's practice to figure out how is my body actually going to manifest this posture because they will never, the posture will never look the same in any two people or actually on any one person in any two given days. So yes, it is in some places, some people still do very strong assists. And I think one thing that can happen if you do strong assists without checking in with the student and without good knowledge of anatomy and alignment and form is that you can cause injury, which is the, a horrible feeling for a teacher, I am sure, to cause another person to have injury. So, you know, my advice for students is always that if you, you know, you have an injury that happens or you feel like an assist is not appropriate for you to talk to the teacher about it. And again, if the teacher cannot take your feedback, then that's something you need to consider. And my advice is that that is a teacher who you might not want to continue to work with because, you know, they're not listening and you need to know you. And, and it's a, a, you know, whether it's a sexual assist or whether it's a harmful assist that injures someone, there is this element of power that we've talked about in this podcast where the teacher is by definition in a position of power. And therefore, they, as the teacher, need to recognize that it will be hard for the student to say, wait a minute, that hurt. And I've experienced that where not through Patabi Joyce, but someone else, a long time ago, and a female teacher 
injured me two different times. And I've never told her because, you know, it was just too awkward. And I felt like something was wrong with me. And it's what needs to happen is that the teachers set it up so that it is clear that you do not have any intention to hurt the student. And that if there is anything that doesn't feel right, you keep checking in with them and they let you know. And then you say, okay, well, how about this? Or let me try that. Or I won't do anything. And a lot of the, some of the best assists can be verbal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I have definitely have my own strong feelings about this that I talked about in another podcast with Jason, um, because I, I just have like a very easily endurable body. So it's hard for me to even know that, that it's gone too far until after. So I feel very, um, protective of myself these days. And I really kind of prefer not to be touched, which I think as Judith said, you know, in her in her style, she asks if people want to be touched or not. One of the things that we're noticing more and more is yoga studios have like chips that you can put on your mat if you don't want to be touched, you know, if you don't want to be assisted in that particular class. And that's a real, that's a relief for someone like me who just really, (laughs) thus I know the teacher. So even if you do, it's highly appropriate in a Mysore class, in a Mysore style class setting. And it is mandatory in our teacher trainings and the people who've worked with us know that we do not assume anybody is definitely wanting an assist. You know, you have to connect with them each day because someone who might've wanted an assist the day before might not today. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. you always check in and you always respect their, whatever's going on for them. Okay. So we're at the point where, to me, it's a relief to hear that that the sexually inappropriate assists, have, you know, it's not something that's passed down through the lineage of Ashtanga yoga. But just I, I have spoken to someone else in the Ashtanga community, and she alluded to the fact that the family hasn't been able to publicly acknowledge it yet. I don't know if that's changed, but I guess I'm wondering... And also that and, uh, I actually learned this from Jay Brown's podcast with Richard, that that they've even kind of taken some people off the certified teaching list. And it's a little bit confusing because one week they're on, one week they're off. They're worried that maybe it's because they've spoken out. So obviously there's conflict and pain there. What's your hope, you know, in terms of the way that the family communicates about this moving forward? Well, I think that's a really uh, good question. And to my knowledge, you know, my knowledge is that the family, if you think about it as a family, and as I described the Ashtanga community as an extended family, and you have the the blood relatives of Patavi Joyce, I think they are both from an Indian, you know, a different culture where and a different time as we all have been. Like I, I take some responsibility for being in classes with Patabi Joyce and kind of semi being aware of uh, some assists that, that seemed strange, but not quite knowing what to do with them and not saying, wait a minute, let's have a, an open discussion about this until we've really hammered it out and decided what's going on here. And that they also um, have 
just sort are just beginning to come to grips with the fact that this is something that that has caused some real injury and some real harm and some real problems. And so my hope is that as the yoga community, we can give one another time to process this in whether it's this or other things that come up down the pike in way to, to process it in whatever way we need to as an individual. So for their family to really let this issue not be this, you know, flash in the pan issue, but something like, wow, this is an important thing. It's not part of the lineage. We love our father, our grandfather, and we love this lineage. How do we move forward from here and not, you know, not forsake our feelings and not forsake our intelligence? And how do we not forsake our students? And so my thinking for the family is, and it's, it's what I ask of students who work with us is to be for the students and the community to be, you know, hang steady for a while to just have some compassion for the, the community at large, for the family and for very much for anyone who was feeling and experienced sexual misconduct, sexual abuse, and to, to sort of almost as one would do in a meditation retreat, hold the container for things to surface, listen to one another from the heart rather than saying, well, I think this, or I think that, or you didn't experience that, but to really let all of this surface and then say, how can this serve us well to move ahead as this lineage evolves so that some of the things like decertification or certification or this, you know, rule or that rule, they're almost like, um, you know, red herrings that are being thrown out. I don't know that that's purpose, you know, at all on purpose, but it's almost like, you know, what is more important to me rather that someone be, certified or not, is that that we say, what is beneath all this? What's the truth of this teaching? And how is this going to benefit students in 10 years, 20 years? How can these teachings continue to evolve and deepen rather than become more shallow because of this? Mm-hmm. And so for me, what I my hope is, is that we can listen to each other and that we can find friends and make new friends, um, through this process, uh, of communicating and then say, okay, what is appropriate? What is beneficial? You know, what needs to be done to, um, make it so that, you know, so that we can help those people who've been harmed. Mm -hmm. What can we do to support the family? I have spoken with one of the people who's been very, very verbal about the abuse she received. And she and I have, over the course of the last couple of months, become very good friends because we were willing to listen to each other. And 
I feel extreme hope for that Mm -hmm. because of that. Um, that we came from very different perspectives, but that we respect each other and that we see there's more to it than this. We see there's a lot of suffering on all sides. And it is really important that we, you know, allow there to be dialogue. And when I spoke a little while ago about the Yoga Alliance, I wanted to just say, I I was saying I'm going to the confluence, which is the Ashtanga gathering. And the confluence knew that this would be an issue that could be of, you know, importance and offered to sponsor having a mediator from the organization called RAIN, which is a sexual abuse organization, a national sexual abuse organization that has mediators, professional mediators. And so they've sponsored a mediator to be at our confluence, to be there just as someone if we need some help. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And I'm so deeply moved by that. And I'm equally moved by the fact that those people who are running the confluence are willing to say, yeah, we'll take some help with this. Yeah. And see, that's where the hope is that we not, and, and that's where the growth will be and that we offer that, you know, we keep coming back to the Joyce family, but they, you know, it's, it's a very difficult position to be in that family because there are three different legs of it. And right now with Sharat and Saraswati and Manju and with their father or grandfather, passing away. It's like trying to figure out where does the lineage go from here. There are all kinds of aspects of this that are, there are people who are wanting to say, well, what's up with this now? What's up with this now? Tell me now. And if I were in that position, I would need time to digest it. Mm. And eventually, you know, hopefully many of the people who have been with this lineage for a long time will be able to see and say publicly that we are so heartbroken that mm. people have been injured by someone we loved as a teacher, we trusted as a teacher, and as, you know, and part of our extended family. You know, what can we do to support those who've, who've been injured? It makes total sense. You know, it's it's sort of from the outside, it's easy to think, well, they're the leaders of the community. They should like have a clear leadership answer, but you're right. I mean, it's their family and I'm sure it is incredibly just painful to grapple with. I'll interrupt you this little bit, but at the same time, that's not a cop-out to say, okay, then we're never going to have to talk about it again. Mm. At some point, it has to step by step by step be resolved in a way that is caring and mm-hmm. kind. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, it's incredible to hear that there will be uh, that trauma person at the, the conference that you're mentioning. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that I'm just really wondering about, you know, how we can actually safeguard people and then just offer just make things more transparent, um, and more discussed and more open so that abuses any range 
just, mm-hmm. just are, are just, people are more aware of the, the possibility and people know what to do if it occurs. I came across something so interesting. I had heard that Sean White, who is an Olympic snowboarder, I was reading about his like medals this year and it said that he was accused by one of his employees of sexual harassment. And I ended up reading that at the Olympics this year, they have trauma units set up for people to report harassment because apparently the coach uh, athlete relationship, it's very common in, in sport. And I guess we all saw this with Larry Nasser and the, and the gymnastics community. So they're actually trying to respond to it by having these trauma units set up and by having a person who walks around with a little sign, like, do you need to talk to me? And that she also had, there's a hotline set up for people to report abuse. And, you know, this is a little different because it's one specific event. Whereas, you know, I don't, I don't really know what's possible within our community, but it does seem like, you know, we all need to exercise some patience and, and to realize there's, it's not going to be a quick fix necessarily, but it is possibly something that someone like some group like Yoga Alliance could spearhead. Um, there is that organization rain mm-hmm. that is a national organization, not specifically for yoga, but uh, there could be a subset of something like that mm-hmm. for yoga that could eventually come into being. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the dialogue, like with this podcast, with some of the writing that's been done, that the dialogue is starting, um, is making it in the forefront of everybody's mind. And what needs to happen is that it becomes as, you know, commonplace as, you know, you pay for a class before you go in and nobody argues with that, that these are your inalienable rights as a student, or these are how you treat your students. Mm -hmm that now that it's out in the open, that there has been, there have been abuses of students. There have been injuries of students. There have been situations where students are treated unfairly in different other ways that that's not practicing yoga. That's Mm not yoga. And that students and teachers and lineages will not put up with that because this has started to come out into the open. And that's why I think it's important that we not be too reactionary, that we be, because change that is lasting needs to have a solid base where we really can communicate and say, yeah, these things actually do need to change. And that doesn't mean that we can never do hands-on assists, but it means that we need to be conscious in the ways we do them, mm-hmm. which should have been, you know, and is for many people happening anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Mary. Thanks for your openness and, and for your thoughtfulness. It's clear that you've thought about so many different sides of the issue. And I'm sure the Ashanga community is grateful to you and Richard for just trying to be leaders, you know, in this subject and also trying not to uh, just trying to create a healing rather than just capitalizing on, on the, the upset. You know what I mean? Well, there, that is my hope that we do, that this is something that can really help the lineage and, and yoga in general evolve in a healthy way. 
And at the same time, you know, things I have said here probably and things I've written in different little, my little piece that I thought was just going to be read by 10 people and went viral. You know, I've gotten feedback that they've been offensive to people and then I've listened and I've tried to change how I'm saying them and also thought, well, why did I say them that way and how Mm. could I be more sensitive to others? So I think that's important for all of us. And I do hope that for me, it's really important to take care of one another. And for me in particular, it's, I feel really that I, I have a sadness that, that the Joyce family is suffering in any pain that I've caused them. I feel horrible about because, you know, they're wonderful people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's wonderful lineage. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah. Thanks again. Well, thank- yeah. Thanks again to Judith and Mary for being here. And thank you to Yoga Journal for helping me to shape this episode. As I said, it's on newsstands right now. You can pick up your copy and read the entire Me Too feature in the March issue of Yoga Journal. I will put show notes for this episode at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 93. And I will include a link to Rachel Brayton's original blog post where she asked women to submit their Me Too stories that they had experienced in the yoga world. It's an upsetting read, but I think it's a necessary read. And I know that she is still working pretty diligently to try to figure out a way for a major news outlet to talk about who the transgressors are. Judith had that question, why don't we name the names? And I thought that was an interesting question. For me personally, I think that until women feel some kind of systemic support, it's not as easy as just naming a name. You have to feel like there's some support behind you to be able to cope with the backlash and the aftermath just my thought. You can tell me what you think either on Instagram or by emailing me at support at jasonyoga.com. And until next week, enjoy your practice.